If you'll turn to uh, Romans 1, verse 17. Last week, we uh, looked at verse 16, and we said that verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1 were really thesis statement, were really a heart, the heart of, of Romans. And really speak to what he'll take the next 15 chapters to unpack. And really what we see here in verses 16 and 17 build from what we see Paul say in verse 15, that he was eager to preach the gospel to those who were in Rome. He was eager to bring the gospel to the saints, to all those who were in Rome. And, and that's still the main point on this week's handout you see there, that Paul was eager to share the gospel. Why was Paul eager? In spite of all its shame, that it brought upon him in spite of all the suffering. Again, Paul says he was not ashamed of the gospel, but Paul was willing to be shamed by the gospel. There's a difference. He was willing to suffer for the gospel. He was willing to be imprisoned because of the gospel, beaten because of the gospel, abandoned by his friends because of the gospel. And yet, why would he persevere? Why would Paul not be ashamed? Why would he be eager to preach the gospel? And we said last week, first of all, because Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. And we talked about all the ways, some of the ways that we can be ashamed. Not necessarily outright saying, I don't believe in Jesus, but just hiding it. We tend to be quiet. We tend to, we tend to quiet up, hide that which we're ashamed of. And we talked about that last week. And part of the reason Paul was eager to preach the gospel because he was not ashamed of the gospel. But secondly, he said Paul under, was not, he was eager to preach the gospel because Paul was confident that it was the power of God to salvation to everyone who believed from the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Paul was confident that there was no other way for a sinner to be reconciled to a holy God apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, if, if you believe that Jesus is one way, then listen to me. If persecution becomes, comes because of your follower of Jesus Christ, you'll just be quiet about that one and rely to another way. But the Bible doesn't give us that privilege. The Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father apart from Jesus Christ. This is a one-way street. The, the Bible eliminates all other possible ways of getting to God except through Jesus Christ. Paul was fine with that. He, he, he accepted that. And therefore, he was eager. He was eager to share. This is the one way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. And what we see in verse 17, that's what we looked at last week. Verse 17 is a, is a continuation why, Paul, are you eager to preach the gospel? And he says the third reason in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. You see it on your hand now. Paul's eagerness to share the gospel is rooted in the fact that he knew the gospel was the revelation of God's righteousness. This idea of God's righteousness is a huge theme in Romans. The, the only other place where he speaks to this is in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where Paul says, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Huge theme of Romans. 117 speaks of righteousness of God. 35, 321, 322, 325, 326. Twice in 10.3, Paul speaks of the righteousness of God. And this righteousness of God is set in direct opposition to everything else, especially works. It's even in Romans 10, if, 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 if I'm alive, when we get there, we'll, we'll see that, that Israel sought to produce a righteousness of their own through works that was not by faith, and they missed it. They did not accept the righteousness that God offered through Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul knew this. The gospel, you see it on your handout, brings into clear display the righteousness of God. Huge theme of Romans. And, and when we'll, as we look at Romans, we will see there on your handout as well that God's righteousness is always closely connected to the gospel. It is always connected to the gospel. Again, the reason, the reason that the gospel is the power of God to salvation is because God, listen, God is doing for sinners what they cannot do on their own and yet what He requires of them, namely that they be righteous. Please, please grasp that. This is why it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Because God, in His grace and mercy, has revealed not only His righteousness, but He's revealed a way for you and I as sinners to be declared righteous. You can go all the way this is and this is not a new idea. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy 6, at the end of the chapter, I think it's verse 25. Moses says, it will be righteousness for you if you obey the law perfectly. Okay, righteousness has always been the issue. In Matthew 5, 20, with regards to the Pharisees, who were the, who were the most outwardly righteous, they were externally righteous, externally religious. Here's what Jesus, Jesus fires a shot over the bow right at the beginning of his ministry, and he says in Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 48 of that verse, of that chapter, Matthew 5, he says, Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what righteousness is. It's perfection. That's why James says, if you, st- if you keep every part of the law and yet stumble at one part of the law, you are guilty of the whole law. Why? Because you're not perfect. It's like, a, it's like an exam where, we've said this before, where you have to get a 100. Well, guess what? If there are, 99, if there are 100 questions and you get 99 right, you fall short. Because of sin, we've fallen short of the righteousness of God. We're not perfect. The dilemma, listen, the dilemma of the gospel, the God's dilemma is this. How do I save sinners? How do I make unrighteous people? How do I declare them to be righteous? And at the same time, same time maintain my own righteousness. That's the dilemma. And we'll see that very clearly in Romans 3.26 where Paul says that, that God is is the is just that word just is another word it's it, it's from the root word of righteousness the god is just and the justifier of those who have faith in god faith in christ 
How can God maintain his righteousness and yet invite sinners into his presence? That's the dilemma of the gospel. And God solved it through Christ. And in doing that, he displayed his own, hello, he displayed his own righteousness. And what God is doing in the gospel is he is graciously, again, this is why his power is on display. He is giving you, through Christ, what he requires of you. Through faith in Christ, God gives you what he requires of you so that you can be in his presence. Therefore, it is a display of his power. Only he could do this. Because only he is righteous. He's graciously... Jesus, is ta- Jesus gets punished. He gets the wrath of our sin. We get his righteousness. Through faith. This is what... We, and it will, Paul is going to go to great lengths to explain this. And this phrase here in 117, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, is a huge phrase because that, that can refer to many, many different things. And in, in Romans 117, I believe that Paul is including all of these in one statement because I believe the gospel displays all of these at one time. And you'll see them on your handout. The, all of this is included and what Paul can, he uses the phrase righteousness of God to reveal all of these at different times. Excuse me. But here, I, I believe the context shows us that all three are pictured. Number one, or A there, the righteousness of God reflects an attribute, an attribute of God. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God in that it reveals his righteous character. It reveals the, the impartiality of God. It, it reveals the faithfulness of God to His Word. It reveals the fact that His loving kindnesses indeed never cease. It, 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 it displays the fact of His kessed, of His covenant loyalty or faithfulness. All of that is pictured in the Gospel. We'll see that in Romans 3. It is a picture of who God is. It's a picture of His character. But, but, God, but the righteousness of God also, B, reflects the status that is given to a believer. Sometimes in Romans, Paul will speak to this specifically. The status in the gospel, through faith in Christ, God declares sinners to be righteous. He doesn't make you righteous. He declares you to be righteous. Just like a judge who renders a verdict and he, the gavel and he says, not guilty. In the gospel, God can rightly declare sinners not guilty, i.e. righteous. Why? Because Jesus Christ fulfilled all the demands of the law that sin required, namely death. The law demanded that someone die where there was sin. But the law also, again, and the law was the picture, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus Christ shed his own blood. So that you and I as sinners could be healed. Again, this is the picture of, of wait. This is nothing new. This is the picture of the Exodus. Sacrifice a lamb. Spread the blood's lamb over the doorposts of your home. And when the angel of death comes, guess what will happen? 
He will pass over every home that has that blood applied to it. That's you and I. Death now. The blood of Christ has been applied to my life by faith. Death will pass over me because of Jesus' blood. Because I've been right, I've been declared righteous. This is a huge deal. It's a status. Just like Daniel said, we're no longer slaves. We've been adopted. Total new change of status. But the righteousness of God also reflects the activity of God. Everything God does is righteous. James 1, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of, of, of heaven and of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting of shadows. Everything God does is righteous. That's why Habakkuk 1.3 says that God is too pure even to look upon unrighteousness. So, so it's the character, it's an attribute of God. God's righteousness is also a status that's given to, to given to sinners through the gospel, but it's also the activity, the continued activity of God. It's like Daniel saying this morning, great is your faithfulness. This is Lamentations 3.23. Your faithfulness is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. They never cease. God's righteousness and the gospel pictures all of that. It pictures God's character. It pictures the status. But it also pictures his continued activity. This is what we saw in 1 Peter 1.5, that we are kept, we are protected by the power of God. God's righteous character continues. God solved the problem of how does a righteous God forgive sinners and maintain his righteousness? How do I rightly declare upon sinners righteousness? Because again, if God would have just said, look, I'm just going to sweep that sin under the rug. He's pretty good. I'm going to sweep it under the rug, act like it never happened. Think about if a judge did that. If, if, if I did something to Tammy and I went before the judge and the judge said, hey, you know what? Chris is, from what I know, Chris has been a pretty good guy. Uh, we're just going to sweep that under the rug and act like it didn't happen. You'd say, no, 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 you can't do that because the law requires, Chris did this, the law requires this. Right? You would say that he is not a righteous judge. He's not a good judge. The law required that someone die because of sin. And God in his mercy crucified Jesus Christ who knew no sin, was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. So that whosoever by faith applies his blood to their life, God's judgment will pass over. That's the gospel. This is what Paul will deal with in, in Romans 3, 20 and 21. This is why when you grasp that, this is why this makes sense. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith. It's through faith. I admit I'm a sinner. I admit that that law, the, that, that sin demands death. And I, by faith, I look to Jesus Christ alone and his work on the cross as totally sufficient in satisfying the wrath of God and satisfying the righteous demands of a holy God. Therefore, I am, by faith, I am declared righteous. 
When you grasp that, when you and I grasp that, do, do you understand why Paul would say, why would you ever be ashamed of that gospel? Why would you ever not want to tell people about that gospel? Listen, the world is selling a lot of gospels. There, there's no gospel like that gospel. There's no gospel steeped in grace as that gospel is. Why would we ever be ashamed of that? What, what we're doing when we're quiet, listen to me, think about this. Not to step on toes, but we're literally being ashamed of the work of a righteous God. Listen, I can think of in my life, I can think of things that other people have done. I can think about that I, things that I've done that, I've been, that I'm ashamed of or could be ashamed of. You understand what you're saying when you're accusing, you're, we're accusing God of being unrighteous. Now, we would never say that out loud. But when we're ashamed of the gospel, that's what we're saying. This is huge. God has done for us what you and I could never do for ourselves. And, and again, it's interesting here. What it says, for, it in the, for in the gospel, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I mean, think about that for just one second. Don't pass over this. And again, at the risk of stepping on toes and I'll blame the medication. If you get offended, it's the medication speaking. Listen, listen to this. Paul could have said here, for in it the love of God is revealed. Is that what Paul said? He did not say that. Does the gospel reveal God's love? John 3.16 said it does, but that's not primary what Paul says here. That's not the primary issue. He could have said, for in the gospel, yours and my value is communicated and revealed. Is that what he said? Is my worth revealed in the gospel? Well, guess what? Maybe implicitly, but not primarily. Think about this. When you and I, when we hear Christians talking about the gospel... What are the primary ways we hear the gospel described? It communicates God's love. It does communicate God's love. But the question is, why wouldn't God love them anyway? Because they're not righteous. The gospel primarily, listen to me, the gospel primarily is a communication of the righteous requirements of a righteous God. And we distort it. When we make it out to just be this, this loving God who resembles my grandfather. I had two great grandfathers. And listen, no matter what I did, they were going to love me and pat me on the back. And Is that the way God is? Just this all-loving God that no matter what happens, he's just going to... No, that's not the truth. He's righteous. We'll get into it next week. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. Listen, that loving teddy bear grandfatherly figure that we've made out of God to be has no room in it for the wrath of God. And when we reveal that, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Here's why we have a problem with that, because it doesn't jive with our just all-loving God. Well, listen, the righteousness of, but the righteousness of God, listen, the righteousness of God demands that God hates sin. And you and I aren't righteous. 
And guess what? Because of that, you and I don't hate sin the way that God hates sin. And so when we reveal that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, and we read that because of their unrighteousness and their pursuant, that although they knew God, they did not honor God nor give thanks to God, and that righteous God gives them over to that which they want anyway, they've rejected Him, they've told Him they don't want Him, and in His righteousness He says, have at it. And the wrath of God is revealed. You and I have no place or context for that understanding in our minds about a holy God because we do not see Him as righteous. We think about him like our grandfather. My grandfather didn't have wrath toward me. He loved me, both of them. But you know what? As great as they were, they weren't righteous. By God's grace, they placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and they were righteous through faith. They had a status of righteousness through faith. The issue of the gospel, please hear this. I'm not here to... The issue of the gospel is righteousness. You and I as sinners, there's a world out there, even if they think they're good, which Romans 3 is going to pull the rug out from under your feet there about you being good and being a seeker, you're not righteous. You're not perfect. So if you're not perfect, you got a problem because God is perfect and His perfection demands that you be perfect if you're to be in His presence. And God, in his, in his righteousness, He made a way for you and I to be gifted by grace, through faith, the very righteousness that He demands of you. It's through faith in Christ. And the gospel reveals that. And listen, go all the way back to 1.5. This is primarily about His name. This is about His glory. It's not about your worth. The gospel is not a picture primarily of your worth. That horribly horribly skews the cross when the gospel when the cross is a testimony to my worth the cross is a testimony to the righteousness of god that he would crucify his own son in order for sinners to be cleansed of their sin why would he do that you see it in handout the praise of god's name is the reason why he saved sinners I had a bunch of verses listening here. We don't even have time. We don't have time to look at them. Listen, everything God does is to his glory. I'll read. Let me read one. Psalm 143. Write this down. Psalm 143, 11. Listen to this. Listen to what it says. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Whose sake, for whose sake does he save sinners? His. To whose glory does he save sinners? His glory. Not because Chris is awesome. Not because I deserved it in any way, shape, or form. Because that's how righteous God is, that he'd be willing to do it at his own cost. And, and again, this is, why, this is why our flesh fights the gospel. We want to have a stake in it. We want to have a part in it. We want to we we do something. This is why Paul says the gospel, again, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, why the gospel is orchestrated this way so that you and I cannot any way, shape, or form take credit for it. As much as you and I want to fight to take credit for it. 
We found God. We discovered God. We did this. We did. No, you did not. No. God is the hero. And he saves sinners for the sake of his name. And it's a revelation of his righteousness. Therefore, do you see why Paul would be eager to share this good news? God is doing for sinners what they could never, ever, ever do on their own. Namely, be declared righteous. And the gospel reveals this. But, but not only that, you see, fourthly, not only is the gospel a revelation of God's righteousness and why Paul was so eager, but you see Paul's eagerness to share the gospel was that he knew that through faith alone and not by works could a man be declared righteous. He says, again, it is revealed from faith to faith. Here it is. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. What Paul is doing here, you see it on your hand, it is showing the centrality of faith with regards to salvation. In every generation, from faith to faith, in every generation, how was somebody saved? Through faith. Listen, as a Christian, how are, how are you saved? Through faith. As a Christian, how do you live? Through faith. As a Christian, in the end, what's it going to be? Faith. Faith. In every generation, Old Testament, New Testament, we are justified, we are declared righteous, we are saved through faith. And yet, we continue to live. That's what he says. For not only saved by faith, the righteous live by that same faith. You see what he means by faith to faith? It begins, it ends, it's always about faith. It's what we saw last week with regards to believe. He says it is, the power of, it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. In the Greek, it is in the present tense. Even in our English, we grab that. Believes. It is a, it is a present tense, continuing. Believes. Not believed one time in the past and not believing today. Every day we wake up believing this as a Christian. My righteousness is in Christ. And we live by faith. We're saved by faith. This is what Paul is saying here. And we live by faith. And what he's doing here is he is contrasting it to works. And the question becomes, okay, Chris, similar to what you asked for about belief, what is biblical faith? Well, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, gives us a very clear picture. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Listen, for by it the men of old gained approval. It is the assurance. That word assurance there in the Greek, it literally means title, deed. How do you prove that your house is your house? Because you show the title. It's a guarantee. And you see it on your handout. Faith is the reliance on God and His Word rather than on human abilities or wisdom or assurances in spite of what we see or feel. And Paul says, you live by this faith. In Romans 4-6, through 6, he'll explain that very clearly, primarily using Abraham. That all of Abra everything to sight in Abraham's life made no sense except the promises of God. This is why in Hebrews 11.6 it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We believe by faith, we seek by faith. You, you go to Hebrews 11. Every single Old Testament saint, 
How did they live? It says, verse 3, by faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Abel did this. By faith, verse 5, Enoch did this. By faith, Noah did this. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham did this. Verse 9, by faith, Abraham did this. By faith, even Sarah did this. Faith. We're to build our lives around what we say and who we say Christ is. Faith. What is he saying? We are to live, believer. We're to live in light of the righteous status that God has declared upon us through Christ. Live in light of that. Live in light of who Christ is. We don't get saved by faith and then live by human wisdom or saved by faith and then just coast on being a good guy or gal. No, we get saved by faith, we live by faith. And this is where you get into what Paul will deal with, but justification is the act of, of God declaring us righteous, but then salvation, I mean sanctification, is the act of us pursuing that righteousness. By the way, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, Paul says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does he mean there? That you conform your life practically to what God judicially has declared upon you. He has declared you to be righteous. You have that status. The rest of your life, by faith, conform your life to the status of having been declared righteous. That's what, that's what sanctification is. You're declared, you're, 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 Conforming by faith your life. You're shaping it around the status that God has declared upon you. And while justification and sanctification, they're not the same thing, they cannot be separated. You see that. They're distinct, but they cannot be separated. They're forever linked in our lives. That's why in 1 Peter 1.15 he said, Therefore, you must be holy as your Father, your Heavenly Father is holy. That we are to pursue the holiness of our Father. We are to pursue the holiness that we've been declared. That's why sin, again, why, why God is going to say the, right, the wrath of God is revealed. Why? Because God hates sin. It is so opposed to His character. And our salvation, you see it there, is received through faith, but our lives are lived through faith. We build our lives around who God has declared us to be in the gospel. What God has done, who we are, how we move forward, everything about that is shaped by the gospel. That's the life of a believer, shaping everything about their life based on who they are in Christ by faith. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. That's why he would say, do all things to the glory of God. Because just because we can doesn't mean it's profitable, doesn't mean it aligns with who we are. And, and I think, parents, we admit, we, admit we, we get this in our own homes. There are things that other families allow their kids to do that, guess what, we don't allow my kids to do. You know why? Not because I'm saying that those parents are bad, and I'm just saying this, we're Bashams. We don't do that. But dad, their parents let them do this. Well, go live with them and let them feed you. <laughs> Guess what? God gave you to me and Karen. You know what? We're shaping their life around who we are and what we believe, right? That's Christianity. This is not some pray a prayer one day and then none of your life reflects that. 
That's a lie. That's called biblical deception. And the gospel, what Paul is saying, why he was eager to preach it, you see it in a handout, is the act by which God himself brings sinners into a right relationship with himself. Through faith in Christ, we are reconciled to God. We go from enemies to sons and daughters. Why would we not, if we really, really believed that? Why would we ever be ashamed of that? I mean, think about it. We, we have a lot of children in this church who have been adopted, who are being fostered. Why would they ever be ashamed of the act of mercy and grace that those parents did on their behalf? Why would they not be eager to tell about it if they really understood what was happening? And, and, and this is how, listen, this is how this is important. We live in a culture where it's, you know, church growth and all this stuff. It basically becomes incumbent on me to do everything right to be the marketing director, to be the, oh, if this church is going to go grow, Chris, you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do this. Listen, bad news for you. If you know me well enough, we ain't growing then. Not that I don't want to preach great sermons. Not that I don't want to teach the Bible well. But we ain't doing that. Here's how we're going to grow. We're going to grow by a group of people being serious about the Word, who's submitting their entire lives to the Word, who are so enamored with the Word and so convinced that Jesus is the Word, that they share the Word, other people repent, from, come to faith through hearing the Word, and then you bring them in here and they grow up in the Word. That's how a church was meant to grow. Not by having the best programs, not by having the best dressed pastor, not by having the best looking pastor, not by having the best facilities, not, not by all this circus stuff we made it to be. It's about the word. That's how a church was meant to grow. Centered on the word. And, and, and I'm grateful for that because I'm not, you don't want it, I don't want the responsibility of growing this church. I got enough on me just preaching the word. We're living lives that are conforming by God's grace. Even our sanctification is by the power of God. Think about that. Philippians 2, 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What he means there is not earn your salvation. Now that <coughs> as saved individuals... Apply that salvation to every area of your life and work it out. As a Christian, what does that mean for my language? As a Christian, what does that mean for my clothes? As a Christian, what does that mean for my work ethic? As a Christian, what does that mean for me at school? As a Christian, what does that mean before I put before my eyes? As a Christian, what does that mean for what I listen to? As a Christian, what does that mean for my conversation with other people? That's working out your salvation. And he says, do it with fear and trembling. And here it is. Here's the key. Verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who ultimately is doing that in you and me? It's God. Ephesians 1.13 says he has put his spirit in you in order to do that. 
And that very spirit is what interprets the word and, and, and convicts of sin and guides in truth and gives us power. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. How do we stand up and not be ashamed? The spirit of God in us. Now that spirit can be quenched. That spirit can be grieved. See Ephesians 5. See 1 Thessalonians 5. Or that's Ephesians 4 rather. But it can be quenched. It can grieve through sin. But listen, the more that we by faith conform our lives to this word, what happens to that spirit? He grows up. And he begins to empower us. And what we'll see in Romans 8, 12, he says, walk by the spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do you defeat sin in your body? Walk by the spirit. Walk by the spirit. And you will put to death the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16. Because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. That's the point. If we would grasp this, listen to what Piper says, and I, I'll, I'll get us out of here. Thank you for your patience. I, we wanted to highlight Pesitos. We wanted you to see, to be, to be accountable, and we wanted to give honor to whom honor is due, God doing that work. And to so give me a, just a couple more minutes here. Piper says this, and I'll try to read it slowly because it's rich, as everything Piper says. You like need an interpreter to read his writing sometimes. When believers know and love and live on the meat of the gospel, we will be so gospel-filled and gospel-shaped and gospel-dependent and gospel-driven and gospel-hoping and gospel-joyful that no one will need to tell us why we need to share the gospel or how to share the gospel. Let me interpret that. He says when our joy is in the gospel, when our hope and satisfaction is in the gospel, it'd be no different than you telling about your kids or your grandkids. You don't need somebody to prompt you. You don't need somebody to tell you how to do that. Why? Because you love them. He says, we will be so thankful and so desperately day by day dependent on the gospel for our hope of eternal life and our own sanity and our own stability and our own marriages, our own singleness, that it will be impossible not to know that people need the gospel and when they need it and how it relates to their biggest needs. Why? Listen to this. Because first we've realized and know that we need it and why we need it, and how it meets our biggest needs day to day. What's Piper saying there? It starts in us. If our joy and total joy and satisfaction and total dependence is not in the gospel alone, what's he saying? We won't share it. We won't. And, and you think about that, it makes sense. I don't tend to share things like... I, if I go play a round of golf, I don't come home giddy to say, hey, Karen, I played terrible today. I don't come home saying, hey, let me tell you about that shot I hit, that, I, I hooked it into that person's yard and bounced it off their roof. You know what I come home bragging about? The shot that I hit to three feet. The long putt I made. Why? Because there's joy there. Until our joy, until our satisfaction is rooted solely in Christ, until we're so set apart to Christ, until we have set Him apart, as we saw in 1 Peter, as Lord of our lives, and we're no longer seeking to please men, but we're singularly seeking to please Christ, we will be ashamed. Why? Because there will be costs. And the gospel, you see it there, the lastly, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news because it announces that God accepts us 
through the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us through faith. Please see how this plays out. See how grasping that in our own lives first plays out. It not only affects us, it not only affects us here in this gathering, listen, it affects everyone around us. I pray that our sharing of this gospel will be at an overflow of joy and love and dependence. And my fear is that's why when, when we're sharing the gospel, why it comes across so contrived and so foreign and so out of left field because we don't integrate the gospel so intimately in our day-to-day lives. All of a sudden, when we try to tell someone of the gospel, it's like we're starting talking in Chinese or something. And people are looking at it, where did that come from? Because it's not, integrally, it's not integrated into our lives on a day-to-day basis. And, and I, until we live in the overflow of this, and, and really, really, Christ is supreme, the gospel will not naturally flow out of our lives, and there will be a level of ashamedness. We are saved by faith, we live by faith, we depend on the gospel by faith. And I pray that we would be a people here who feast on the gospel every day of our lives. When you sin, brothers, again, 1 John 2, 1, I write these things to you little children so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Listen, when you sin and fall short, go back to the gospel because it wasn't my self-righteousness to begin with. Again, 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he's writing this to believers, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This ought to free us up to repent in a way like never before. Why? Because my righteousness was not found in my ability not to sin to begin with. It was found in Christ's power and His sufficiency. It doesn't give us a license to sin. It gives us the freedom to repent because our righteousness is in Christ. But it also enables us and empowers us to forgive others when they sin. Because you know what? Their righteousness is not in their ability not to sin either. It's in Christ. And the moment we grasp that personally in our own lives first, the more we'll grasp it over here with others. And that will be an attractiveness to the world around us as well, that they'll want to be a a, a part of a body like that. But it starts with us grasping the gospel first. And living by it day by day. May we be a people who feast on the gospel every day.